You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road in Hillsboro, North Carolina. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Thanks, Becky. Compassion is an interesting thought, isn't it? What is, how would you describe compassion? How would you define it? We could, we could throw it out there and say it's, it's just taking care of something that needs to be taken care of. That may be a definition. But when we hear the word compassion, we have to kind of throw some other things in the mix. Because you can see something and go, ah, I just kind of want to take care of that. But I think compassion goes maybe just one step deeper. If we talk about the compassion of God, what we're saying or thinking about maybe is that checking out the reality of the situation and then responding in a way that shows mercy or grace. And so when we start saying we want the heart of compassion that God has, we want that to to flow through our lives. And what we're saying is, God, first of all, I need to see the reality of what's going on. I can't gloss over something. We, you probably have walls in your house. You might, you might not, but I'm guessing you may have walls in your house that you've walked by on a regular basis and there's a scuff or something. And now you'll go home and you'll say, I need to look now. But, but it may have been there for a long, long time. And the longer you live someplace, the, the less you see the, the minor defects that, and you've just become accustomed to seeing or just passing by. There are things in our, in our house right now because we're, we're, we're still settling. You know, a year and a half, you think uh, you should be done by now. But, but we're trying to, trying to get to that house where we're going to settle and unpack the cardboard and all that stuff. But there are things in the hallway and in just inside rooms and stuff that are still in boxes. And I've become so accustomed to seeing the box there or walking around it that it, fa- it doesn't phase me a bit. But if you came over to my house and I started looking around, I would go, oh, we need to put that away. Not bad stuff, in case you were wondering, but we just need to put that away. So, so when we start thinking about the word compassion, it's about seeing the reality for what it is, and then responding in a way that, that conveys the heart of God. In Mark chapter 2, we're going to go to a, a very familiar story if you've been in church for any length of time. It's Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And Mark's going to paint this, this vivid picture for us, and it's going to kind of capture our imaginations. So it'll be in Mark chapter 2, and I want us to pray before we get into this. Okay, so let's, let's just pray right now, and then we'll start looking at the Scripture passage. Father, we thank you so much for your Word. Father, we thank you for the truth of your Word, for the pictures from your Word, and for how it reveals who you are. And so, God, I pray that you would help us. If we've heard this story, read this story, seen this story, um, maybe even acted out, God, that you would help us to see it with fresh eyes. And hear it with fresh ears 
and, and take it in and let it soak in to a heart that is soft. And God, at the same time, if we've never heard this before, Father, I pray that you would just reveal to us the truth of your word. That we may not get lost in the details of looking at this passage, but we would see your heart and what we need to do in response to your heart and your call on our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would use Mark 2, that you would use it in us to change us and not leave us the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark 2, very familiar story. If you've been around for a little while. Essentially, it's one of those stories where we, we talk about it and we go, oh, that could never happen here. How do you know? So let's read it. Let's see how Mark describes this. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, talking about Jesus, it was reported that he was at home. So we know where he's at. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So you got the picture? Let's just stop right there. Because, because we need to have this picture in our minds of what's going on. Jesus has returned, and he's stopped at home, and he's there, and he's been there a couple days, and people figure out he's home. Now, my background, and we've talked about this before, you know, I, I love hockey. And my, my first thought when I thought about this was that at the end of the season, when somebody wins the Stanley Cup, the players that are on the winning team, they get to spend a day with the cup. It's one of the coolest trophy things you could possibly be part of. So they got this big trophy. I mean, it's, it's, it's big. And it's got all the names of all the winners of all the Stanley Cups prior to them. And so you'll have guys on there from the 50s and 60s whose names have been engraved on there. There's even misspellings on there. And I mean, it's just kind of the way it works. It's an imperfect trophy given to a team that won a series. And they take that and they take it back to their hometown and they do all kinds of stuff with it. I was going to show you some pictures, but decided not to do it because, uh, just because. But there's one, one of, it was, there was a guy who had it in his grocery cart buying dog food. And so you got that one. Then another guy will take it to the hospital to visit kids that are struggling with diseases. And then you got a, a family who's pouring a, a gallon of milk into the top of it because they're going to have cereal and milk out of the top of the Stanley Cup. I mean, they do all kinds of weird stuff with it. Um, they go swimming with it. Um, they take it all kinds of different places and in all kinds of different situations, but it is one of those trophies that when you see it, you go, there is so much history with it, and yet these guys get to take it home for a day and do whatever they want, and when they come back home with that cup, word travels very quickly that the cup is in town. And so it's not just the player, because they're used to the player, but now they, they have the accomplishment to go with it. And what was happening in Jesus' hometown is he had come back, but the, the news of the accomplishments of what he had done in other places, the healing, the preaching, all that stuff, had come home to Capernaum. And when Jesus arrives, he spends a little bit of time and then word starts to travel. So he gathers a crowd around at this house. 
And so that's what we find in, this, in these first couple of verses. Many were gathered together so there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to, to them. So again, Jesus teaching crowd. Not an unusual picture. But so much so that nobody could get where Jesus was. And so we get to verse 3. It said, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So who came? Well, we've got, we know that the four guys that are carrying the paralytic came to that spot. And they came to him, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. So the crowd around the paralytic may have been a little bit bigger than just the four, but we know that four guys were carrying a guy that couldn't walk. And, they, and when they could not get near him, Jesus, because of the crowd, they did something very unusual. Now, I just want to stop here for, for a moment because in this story, in Mark chapter 2, there are a couple things that we've got to figure out. One is, why does Mark even share this story? Why is this important? Because it seems like just another healing story in the Gospels. So we have to know why did he share it, and then what is it about this story that teaches us to do something? What application is, it, is there for us? Because if we only say this is the intellectual knowledge that we need to have about Jesus and who he is, if it's only intellectual then we've walked out of here just the same, only with just a bit more knowledge. If it does not change what we do, then it's just an academic exercise. And you can do academic exercise all day long, anywhere you want, and if it doesn't change your life or what you do with your life, then it's pretty much just book knowledge. Anybody can have book knowledge. There's a lot of difference between book knowledge, having it all here, and having a piece of it here. There's a ton. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So we, we need to know, why does Mark include this? What does it tell us about Jesus and the others in the story, and how does it apply to me? And so these guys bring this paralytic to Jesus. There's no place for them to go. This paralytic is obviously unable to get to Jesus by himself. He's unable to, to even show up by himself, but he's carried by these four guys. And I, I don't know what it looked like. I don't know if it was a, you know, it says he's got a pallet or a mat or a couch, depending on which versions you read. But he's being carried on this thing to the place where Jesus is, and they encounter a crowd. And so there's this seemingly insurmountable challenge in the life of a paralytic that he can't show up there by himself. And maybe it's a, a hopelessness, but this we know. We know that he had four friends. It's pretty simple. He's carried by four guys. He had four friends. We don't know how strong they were, but they were at least strong enough to carry the paralytic. And they got him to this place. And it, Scripture does not indicate how long he had been in this condition. It does not indicate if he had sought medical advice from anybody. All we know that is that he was a paralytic carried by four guys to a house where Jesus was, and he couldn't get in. He couldn't get to where Jesus was. And we can assume that he may have heard Jesus' voice, but we don't, it doesn't even say that. We just know that Jesus was at that spot. These guys were outside, and, and it was going to take something to get 
those five guys from there to here, from outside to inside. And so we get to this next part. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, Jesus, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. That's crazy. Please don't cut a hole in my roof. If you want to come see me, knock on the door. Ring the doorbell. Beat on the door. Grab a friend and both of you beat on the door. But don't destroy my roof. Uncalled for. It's possible. They carried the paralytic to this spot. Got there. And they were persistent. You know, there are a lot of things that could have happened in this scenario, in this situation. They could have showed up carrying the guy, looked at the crowd and said, we can't get in. And then what would you naturally do? Go back home, right? Let's take him back. Can't get in. It's too hard. They didn't do that. I went to a fast food restaurant the other night and I, I went in because the drive through had like 15 cars at it. And I thought, I am not sitting in this line for that food. Okay? So, so I decided, well, I'm going to go in. So I went in, and I walked in, and I was the second person in line, and there were a couple of guys in front of me. And I don't know how long they had been there, but they had been there long enough that they decided that it had been too long. And so they turned around, and they walked out, and I thought, oh, this is not looking good. 15 cars outside and the guys in front of me are walking out because it's taking too long and they're at the register. So we went through that scenario, but I'm thinking in this case, here are these guys, they show up with a paralytic, there's a crowd outside and they could have just turned around and walked out. Line is too long to see Jesus. They could have wanted to do that and, and gone the other direction. But the goal was to get this guy to Jesus, Right? And so that's their whole purpose for even showing up was to get them there. So really, in their minds, it was not an option to give up. They had to face the present reality. Face the present reality that this guy was bedridden and the guy laying there had to face that reality as well. That was one of the options that they had available to them. And because of those around Jesus and not being able to get in, they could have used it as an excuse. The other way they could have approached this is they could have showed up, the four guys carrying the paralytic, and gone through, and somebody getting ahead of them and just being like a snowplow and moving people out of the way. That's, they could have done that, just kind of split it. And said, we're pushing our way in. And for most of us, that would have been the traditional way of approaching a crowd that we needed to get through. Have you ever been in a big group of people, but you need to get to the other side? You just start going, excuse me, excuse me, and you start throwing a couple of elbows. And you get to the other side, and you're going, I'm never seeing them again. Mm. So you move through the crowd. It's a traditional way of dealing with a concert crowd. So they could have done that. But they got creative instead. They got a little unconventional and they went up to the top of the roof and started removing the roof. Now, different commentators will tell you it could have been mud and thatch or could have been tile. Does it really matter? 
Somebody cuts a hole in the roof, it doesn't matter if it's steel. If they cut a hole in the roof and drop a guy down through it, who cares? The concern is not the type of roof. The concern is that there was a roof that prevented them from getting down on top of Jesus until they removed it, and then they dropped the guy in. He didn't parachute in. They dropped him in. I'm thinking, how big is the hole? If I'm going to drop a bed or a mat or something with me laying on it, the hole is not going to be small. Because I'm not that small. And I'm thinking, okay, you so you drop them down vertically. I don't know the technology. You know, they don't have ratchet straps or anything like that. They hold them to the mat, do they? And so they, they've got to lower this guy. And I don't know if they lowered him like this or like this. But even that doesn't matter. They cut a hole in the guy's roof to drop this guy down into the presence of Jesus. It was a desperate attempt to gain an audience with Christ. And they did all that they could to get him in front of Jesus, and they fought for it. The paralytic's condition drove him, drove them to Jesus. And so they showed up. Um, I read this quote. It says, sometimes the hard times in life are gifts in disguise, especially when they bring us closer to God. Think about that just for a moment. The hard times in life are gifts in disguise, especially when they bring us closer to God. And the guy who said it was a guy who had dealt with cancer and was told that he wasn't going to live. And he was prayed over and he worked through some things. It was Vernon Brewer, the, the founder of World Health. If you get a chance to read his book, it's called Why. And he'll, he lays out the scenario of what God had done in the midst of him dealing with this diagnosis. But what he saw, what Vernon saw in this, and I think it's what these guys began, began to see, is that God was doing something, and although it was a really hard situation, a paralytic on a bed, Vernon in a bed, dealing with a disease, that God was going to do something in the midst of that. And so I want us to learn three things on this front end of this passage. That not, not all obstacles are walls. Not all obstacles are walls. What might appear hopeless to you may be just a challenge to somebody else. The second thing is that friends can be a valuable catalyst to growing in your faith. I've listened to more people say, I can do church at home all by myself, and my response to that is, no, you can't. You have a personal relationship to Christ, but you don't do Christianity in isolation. Because there are going to be times in your life that you are going to fail miserably or feel miserable going through, and you need somebody to come along and pick you up, come beside you and hold your arms just like they did Moses on top of that mountain before a battle. You're going to need a friend. And so friends can be a valuable catalyst to growing in your faith. The third thing is that you can help others succeed, even if you're struggling. You don't have to have it all figured out to come beside somebody else. There are times when we struggle and the best thing we can do is to step out of our struggle in helping somebody else work through theirs. And so you can help others succeed. 
See, the thing that we don't know in, in Mark chapter 2 is we don't know what the ailments of the four guys that carried the paralytic to Jesus and got him through the roof, we don't know what they were dealing with. We have no idea, but it doesn't matter. They came alongside this guy and expressed their faith by dropping him through a, a hole in a roof. So we never give up. Your faith may be the exact thing that brings encouragement to somebody else. Verse 5. And so we get there and they drop this guy through the roof. Jesus is standing there. He's been teaching. And I, and I got to wonder that at some point, somebody didn't notice the hole. You know, if, if you're, and I'll just tell you, if I'm standing here doing what I'm doing right now and pellets of the roof start falling on my head, I'm looking up. It doesn't really matter if you're here or not. I'm going to look up because I want to know why is the roof falling on my head. And I'm guessing that happened there. There would be guys in that crowd and Jesus is teaching and all of a sudden some commotion happens above them, which is an unexpected place, and they just kind of go, all right? And so all the attention could have shifted from Jesus to this guy coming through the roof because it was not normal. So in verse 5, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, and he makes a statement. Now, I want to ask a question. Whose faith was Jesus looking at? Seeing their faith. We want to say the four guys, right? What about the paralytic? Is he counted among the ones that have faith? Yeah, a paralytic is in a spot where this guy could have responded to the other four and said, no, I don't want to go. But he, he may have said, I'm game, let's go. Who knows what's going to happen? I think when Jesus, when it says that Jesus saw their faith, I don't think he was talking about just the four that were holding the edges of the mat. I think he was talking about all five of them. I think that when they got to that spot, he recognized that there were five guys that were expressing faith and they were willing to do whatever they could to help their friend. So I think it was all five. It was a display of faith. It was a, a confident possibility that something was going to happen if we could get this guy in front of Jesus. And I think they approached it like that. And so one of the questions we might have is, how much faith does it take for this to take place? How much faith did these guys have to have? We look at it and we go, they had to have a tremendous amount of faith to, to get up there, cut through the roof, and drop him in. I don't think so. I don't think they even had an extraordinary faith. I think it was a, quite a normal faith. It was just a faith that was willing to take one extra step in doing something that they were, where they were confident in God. Just one step. Because it took them one step to move toward the top of the roof. It took them one step to begin digging on the roof. It took them one step to lower him. That's all it took was one step. One step to get in front of Jesus. They didn't know what would happen they only knew what could happen. So as they lower him, it's not about going, I know that God's going to heal him. It may have been just, if we can get him before Jesus, I know that it could happen. 
We want to we check out that possibility. And say that they lower him. So here's the question for us. It's on the screen. What could happen if you were completely obedient to God? We don't really know the answer to that, do we? Now we could take some guesses. If I'm completely obedient, this would happen. We could take some guesses, but we don't know exactly. If I'm completely obedient to God, it may mean that you move somewhere. It may mean you give up something. It may mean that you give more. There's a lot of different things. It may mean that you step into a ministry you've never been part of before. It may mean that you hold the edge of a mat and move to the messy part of life just because you're being obedient to God. They knew what could happen, or they knew they didn't know what would happen, only what could happen. And they were willing to do what was unexpected to get their friend in front of Christ. I want to say when you exercise your faith, it can be fearful. When we moved here, and it's it our story is not a great example. It's not a big thing of faith. Just understand that. It's just a step. When we moved here, we didn't know anybody. We moved here without a house. Of course, we're still in that, but we're working on it. But when we moved here, we didn't know anybody. We came here, know, I guess, knowing the, the few people that were on the search team, because that was the contact we had. But we moved into an unknown situation, saying, God, if you want us to move, then by faith, we'll make that step. And there are people that do it all the time. Bobby Schreiner stepped into FCA that way. Tim and Laura are going to Africa. They step out in that, in that way. There's an acts of obedience, steps of obedience in following where God wants to take you. And we go around the room. There's all kinds of different ones. Cottrells are in this area because of safe families and what they felt like God was calling them to do here. There are a lot of different places where we can step in faith, but it takes a step to get going. Yeah, exercising your faith can be somewhat fearful. In fact, exercising your faith can also bring on consequences. And you say, well, I may not want the consequences of that. The reality for the paralytic is if Jesus heals me, what changes in my life? I don't have to be carried anywhere, but now I may have to do something else. His life was going to be completely changed. It was going to be transformed. And that's kind of the idea behind what Paul says in Romans 12, or yeah, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is that our life, our bodies would be given as an act of worship and, it would, and we would allow Him to transform us, the renewing of our minds, so that God could be worshipped and praised. It's allowing God to do what He wants to do, and we have to trust God for the outcome. And so we get back to this story. Jesus says, and after seeing their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I just got to step back for a second. Because if I read the beginning part of this story right, these four guys did not care this paralytic, climb on top of the roof, drop him in so that his sins could be forgiven. It's not why they showed up, is it? They wanted him to walk. 
We, we are assuming that they wanted some kind of healing to take place in this, and, and for some reason, this story seems to go sideways. Jesus addresses the spiritual part of his life before he ever addresses the physical part of his life. We're kind of used to reading these stories going, Jesus healed him, and then he told him not to sin. But this is kind of opposite of that. So what sins are part of the paralytic's life? Because we have to assume that Jesus knew. And maybe it was jealousy of those that are walking around him. Envy. Maybe the paralytic, knowing that he couldn't change any of his circumstances, maybe he had an issue with lust. Maybe even unbelief. And we could go down the list of different sins that a paralytic could accomplish from a bed. But Jesus turns around and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I'm thinking, if I'm the paralytic, I'm going, hmm, that's not what I expected. It's not what I'd heard in the rumors. I'd heard that you heal. And I'm ready to walk. Jesus takes a little different tact. The goal was to walk. And I would think for the paralytic that he's thinking anything short of my expectations is failure. Jesus, you failed here. Are there times when we approach God and say, God, because you didn't meet up to the expectations or my standards, you failed? When we count what God does or doesn't do as failure because he fails to measure up or doesn't measure up to my standard, how close are we being to where God wants us? Last Sunday night, we gathered at a different church. It was going to be at a school. Things got, kind of got changed around. We gathered for a prayer gathering. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, there, there are a lot of students at Orange, but if we include all the different high schools and middle schools around. We take all those students and all the churches that are involved and do that. We could have a lot of people for a prayer gathering. And we're praying about stuff that's pretty normal. It, we're praying about our nation and government for the safety of students and teachers, administration as they're making decisions and trying to figure out what is a wise thing to do. Get there. There's nowhere close to 500 there. Now, I'm not saying that I'm disappointed. But in my mind, I, I pictured 500 people. And so I walk away from it and I go, okay, God, did you fail? Because it didn't meet up to my expectation? I don't think God failed at all. I think God accomplished exactly what he wanted to accomplish with those that were in the room. I've got to get over myself. I've got to get over the fact that my expectation on that particular thing may have been higher than what God needed for his purpose. And that the ripple effect of that, because there wasn't 500 in the room, there was a, a number that was significantly smaller than 500 in the room, that he will be able to do what he wants to do with that as a ripple effect of his grace and mercy on a community. And it may not be evident to my eyes at this point. 
Son, your sins are forgiven. In verse 6, it says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. I love it. Scribes always seem to show up. Scribes and Pharisees, always part of the crowd, right? So some of the scribes were sitting there, and I assume that they were listening to Jesus teach. But then they get to this part, and they question in their heart, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now let's just stop because the question is good. But we, we kind of read into this and go, well, these guys were evil. There's a part at which they're trying to guard certain things. And when they, make, when they start thinking about this, going, who can forgive sins but God alone? They are stating a truth. Nobody but God can forgive sin. And what they're looking at is they're looking at Jesus and not equating Jesus with God at all. They're equating Jesus with just another itinerant preacher cutting through town that seems to draw a crowd. And so they, they are thinking correctly because even Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. That's talking about God. And then Psalm 130 says this, it says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Need for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We could all find ourselves in that spot. If we wore signs about what was wrong with us and how we failed God, if we wore signs around our neck, nobody would want to hang around with us. You, O Lord, should mark our iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So Psalm 130 reminds us that it's God who forgives. The heart of the matter comes down to who is Jesus and what does he have the authority to do? And if Jesus is really God, he has all the authority that he needs to say, son, your sins are forgiven. But if he doesn't, then he has stepped outside of what he should have. So Mark's making a statement here in this. He's saying, no, this Jesus, he is God. He is Savior. He is from the beginning. And he has the authority to do exactly what he said. Son, your sins are forgiven. He has the authority to forgive sin. And immediately Jesus, in verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, so Jesus questions them, he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say than the paralytic. So he goes back to the paralytic and the relationship there. He says, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. So what's easier? Your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and get out of here. Which is easier to say? Well, to just say them with no effect means nothing. But to say them and have an effect means everything. And so what Jesus is asking is, do you believe that I am what I tell you I am? You believe that I'm God. You're welcome. 
It's such a funny thing when it happens. So when, so when we get to that situation, and this question, come back, come back in the room here. Um, when we get to that situation and Jesus says, your, sons, your sins are forgiven, he's allowed to. He's permitted to. And so Jesus says, asked them, he said, what's easier? And then he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Look what it says. So that you may know. So that you may know. We don't need to question God's ability to do what Scripture says. When we get to the place where we say, this part I realize or understand that God can do, and here's another section that I don't think He will, we've stepped out of obedience and into sin. The promises of God are sure because He is faithful. Next thing is that Jesus actually completes the work. He says, he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And in verse 12 it says, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Of course you didn't. Take your bed and go home. It's, it's kind of... When you start to think about this, it's real interesting. The paralytic didn't lay there. He goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm stuck here. I'm really stuck here. I'm a paralytic. I can't get, take up my bed and leave. I know you said that, but I really can't do that. I've never been able to do that. doesn't say that the paralytic questioned Jesus. He didn't even, I don't, I don't even know that the paralytic looked up to his friends and go, what do you guys think? Should I try it? Looks as if when Jesus said it, he just got up. He didn't question whether Jesus was able to do it. He just got up and did it. There are a lot of things that God may call us to do. And if we're sure God is calling us to do it, we better just get on with it and do it. There's no argument. So the question is, why, why do we go through this exercise? Why does Mark write this? I, mean, we, I think he writes it so that we'll understand who Jesus is. He writes it because we need to apply the truth of God's Word and the authority of Jesus to our own lives. It reveals His compassion, His identity, and His authority. The other thing it does is it encourages us to stretch our faith. Because faith requires action. James 2.26 says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now hear that. 
Because we could, we could apply that or, or take it into the context of somebody who has died and their body is there, but their spirit is not. And we say, they're not here anymore. And that would be a correct thing. Because somebody who dies in relationship with God through Jesus Christ and has trusted, trusted Him for their salvation is in the presence of God. And so we say, they're not here, but we know where they're at. They are in the presence of God, enjoying all the riches of God's glory in heaven. We can confidently say that. So James writes, For just as the body without spirit is dead, so the body lies there, and there's no life in it, but the life has left that body and is in the presence of God. And then he, he likens it to faith and works. He said, so also faith without works is dead. So I think what Mark is telling us and what James would tell us is that we can look at this and it's going to take us doing something to show our faith. We can no longer sit and be idle and apathetic about what goes on around us and say, well, we've got great faith in God. We can't go, it's somebody else's job to do it. We've got to step into the mess and out of the apathy and say, God, if your promises are correct, I want to be exactly where you want me to be. Knowing that you will both protect and provide for me. The third part of that is that our friendship could help somebody overcome life's obstacles through faith. So it's an exercise of faith. And so when we read Mark chapter 2, there's more to it than just a couple of guys dropping a guy through a roof and him getting healed. It ought to challenge us. It ought to make us fight for our faith and fight for doing something that would affect somebody else's life. I think we approach stuff sometimes saying it's too hard. It's too hard. If God gives us something to do, step into it. So what do I need to do this morning? What do we need to do this morning? First thing we need to do is we need to exercise faith. That's going to require action couple things you could do with this. One is you could ask the question, if I were to be obedient, what could happen in my life? And so some of us have to say, God, I'm tired of sitting here not exercising my faith. The evidence of no exercise is you end up bigger and unable to move, right? bigger and unable to move. I've gained 10 pounds since I've been here. We all live in that world. So exercising our faith is important. One step, exercise your faith. What could happen if I'm trusting God? The second thing is if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ is to start trusting God. 
Say, God, I don't have a relationship with you, but I want to come to you understanding that you have the authority and the, and the authority to forgive sin. You are who you say you are. And the only way I can have a relationship is through you. Second thing we could do is to be a friend or come alongside somebody that needs to refocus on God. Third thing is just confessing that our faith needs help. We need to be more faithful. Exercising faith, it's, it's an act of repentance. And some of us, myself included, need to get to the point where we exercise our faith a little more than anything else on us. So I want us to pray that we would be the people of God that do what He calls us to do. That we'd be able to stretch beyond what we're used to so that we can be the people of God that He's called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank you for this story that reminds us of who Jesus is, but also reminds us that we must exercise our faith and have confidence that you will protect and take care of us. Father, I pray that those of us that have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, that we would that we would exercise our faith or extend our faith or stretch it or at least be open to it and not give up as quickly as we tend to do. Father, I pray that you would use us as a, as a church family to reach a community that desperately needs you. And so, Father, it may mean going confidently around the crowd. And so, Father, help us to be people that are so, so set on pleasing you and getting to you that we will fight for that. And God, be glorified by us in how we respond to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.